0: Chapter ninety seven of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume three, Part one by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain THE KING'S CARD TABLE Fouquet was present, as D'Artagnan had said, at the king's card table; it seemed as if Buckingham's departure had shed a balm on the lacerated hearts of the previous evening; Monsieur, radiant with delight, made a thousand affectionate signs to his mother; The Count de Guiche could not separate himself from Buckingham, and, while playing, conversed with him upon the circumstance of his projected voyage. Buckingham, thoughtful and kind in his manner, like a man who has adopted a resolution, listened to the Count, and from time to time cast a look full of regret and hopeless affection at Madame. The Princess, in the midst of her elation of spirits, divided her attention between the King, who was playing with her, Monsieur, who quietly joked her about her enormous winnings, and de Guiche, who exhibited an extravagant delight. Of Buckingham she took but little notice. For her, this fugitive, this exile, was now simply a remembrance, no longer a man. Light hearts are thus constituted while they themselves continue untouched. They roughly break off with every one who may possibly interfere with their little calculations of selfish comfort. Madame had received Buckingham's smiles and attentions and sighs while he was present, "'But what was the good of sighing, smiling, and kneeling at a distance? "'Can one tell in what direction the winds and the channel, "'which toss mighty vessels to and fro, carry such sighs as these? "'The Duke could not fail to mark this change, and his heart was cruelly hurt. "'Of a sensitive character, proud and susceptible of deep attachment, "'he cursed the day on which such a passion had entered his heart. "'The looks he cast from time to time at Madame "'became colder by degrees at the chilling complexion of his thoughts.' He could hardly yet despair, but he was strong enough to impose silence upon the tumultuous outcries of his heart. In exact proportion, however, as madame suspected this change of feeling, she redoubled her activity to regain the ray of light she was about to lose. Her timid and indecisive mind was displayed in brilliant flashes of wit and humor. At any cost, she felt that she must be remarked above everything and everyone, even above the king himself. And she was so for the queens, notwithstanding their dignity, and the king, despite the respect which etiquette required, were all eclipsed by her. The queens, stately and ceremonious, were softened and could not restrain their laughter. Madame Henrietta, the queen mother, was dazzled by the brilliancy which cast distinction upon her family, thanks to the wit of the granddaughter of Henry the Fourth. The king, jealous as a young man and as a monarch, of the superiority of those who surrounded him, could not resist admitting himself vanquished by a petulant so thoroughly French in its nature, whose energy was more than ever increased by English humor. Like a child, he was captivated by her radiant beauty, which her wit made still more dazzling. Madame's eyes flashed like lightning. Wit and humor escaped from her scarlet lips like persuasion from the lips of Nestor of old. The whole court, "'subdued by her enchanting grace, noticed for the first time that laughter "'could be indulged in before the greatest monarch in the world, "'like people who merited their appellation of the wittiest and most polished people in Europe. "'Madame, from that evening, achieved and enjoyed a success capable of bewildering "'all not born to those altitudes termed thrones, "'which, in spite of their elevation, are sheltered from such giddiness. "'From that very moment Louis the Fourteenth acknowledged Madame as a person to be recognized,' Buckingham regarded her as a coquette deserving the cruelest tortures, and De guiche looked upon her as a divinity, the courtiers as a star whose light might some day become the focus of all favor and power. And yet Louis the Fourteenth, a few years previously, had not even condescended to offer his hand to that ugly girl for a ballet, and Buckingham had worshipped this coquette on both knees, The guiche had once looked upon this divinity as a mere woman, and the courtiers had not dared to extol this star in her upward progress, fearful to disgust the monarch whom such a dull star had formerly displeased. Let us see what was taking place during this memorable evening at the king's card-table. The young queen, although Spanish by birth, and the niece of Anne of Austria, loved the king, and could not conceal her affection. Anne of Austria, a keen observer like all women, and imperious like every queen— was sensible of Madame's power, and acquiesced in it immediately, a circumstance which induced the young queen to raise the siege and retire to her apartments The king hardly paid any attention to her departure, notwithstanding the pretended symptoms of indisposition by which it was accompanied, Encouraged by the rules of etiquette which he had begun to introduce at the court as an element of every relation of life, Louis the fourteenth did not disturb himself; He offered his hand to madame without looking at monsieur, his brother, and led the young princess to the door of her apartments. It was remarked that at the threshold of the door, his majesty, freed from every restraint, or not equal to the situation, sighed very deeply. The ladies present, for nothing escapes a woman's glance, mademoiselle de Montalais, for instance, did not fail to say to each other, the king sighed, and madame sighed too. This had been indeed the case. Madame had sighed very noiselessly, but with an accompaniment very far more dangerous for the king's repose. Madame had sighed, first closing her beautiful black eyes, next opening them, and then, laden as they were with an indescribable mournfulness of expression, she had raised them toward the king whose face at that moment visibly heightened in color. The consequence of these blushes, of these interchanged sighs— and of this royal agitation was that Montalais had committed an indiscretion which had certainly affected her companion, for Mademoiselle de La Valliere, less clear-sighted perhaps, turned pale when the king blushed, and her attendance being required upon madame, she tremblingly followed the princess without thinking of taking the gloves, which court etiquette required her to do. True it is that this young country girl might allege as her excuse the agitation into which the king seemed to be thrown, for Mademoiselle de La Vallière, busily engaged in closing the door, had involuntarily fixed her eyes upon the king, who, as he retired backwards, had his face toward it. The king returned to the room where the card-tables were set out. He wished to speak to the different persons there, but it was easy to see that his mind was absent. He jumbled different accounts together, which was taken advantage of by some of the noblemen who had retained these habits since the time of Monsieur Mazarin, who had a poor memory, but was a good calculator. In this way, Monsieur Manicamp, with a thoughtless and absent air, for Monsieur Manicamp was the honestest man in the world appropriated twenty thousand francs, which were littering the table, and which did not seem to belong to any person in particular. In the same way, Monsieur de Ward, whose head was doubtless a little bewildered by the occurrences of the evening, somehow forgot to leave behind him the sixty double louis which he had won for the Duke of Buckingham, and which the Duke, incapable like his father of soiling his hands with coin of any sort, had left lying on the table before him. The king only recovered his attention in some degree at the moment that— monsieur colbert who had been narrowly observant for some minutes approached and doubtless with great respect yet with much perseverance whispered a counsel of some sort into the still tingling ears of the king the king at the suggestion listened with renewed attention and immediately looking around him said is monsieur fouquet no longer here yes sire i am here replied the superintendent to then engaged with Buckingham and approached the king who advanced a step toward him with a smiling yet negligent air. "'Forgive me,' said Louis, "'if I interrupt your conversation, but I claim your attention wherever I may require your services.' "'I am always at the king's service,' replied Fouquet. "'And your cash-box, too,' said the king, laughing with a false smile. "'My cash-box more than anything else.' "'said Fouquet coldly. "'The fact is, I wish to give a fête at Fontainebleau, "'to keep open house for fifteen days, and I shall require—' "'And he stopped, glancing at Colbert. "'Fouquet waited without showing discomposure, "'and the king resumed, answering Colbert's icy smile. "'Four million francs.' Four million million,' repeated Fouquet, bowing profoundly, "'and his nails, buried in his bosom, were thrust into his flesh. "'But—' The tranquil expression of his face remained unaltered. When will they be required, sire? Take your time. I mean, no, no, as soon as possible. A certain time will be necessary, sire. Time, exclaimed Colbert triumphantly. The time, monsieur, said the superintendent, with the haughtiest disdain, simply to count the money, a million can only be drawn and weighed in a day.' Four days, then,' said Colbert. "'My clerks,' replied Fouquet, addressing himself to the king, "'will perform wonders on his majesty's service, and the sum shall be ready in three days.' "'It was for Colbert now to turn pale.' Louis looked at him astonished. Fouquet withdrew without any parade or weakness smiling at his numerous friends, in whose countenances alone he read the sincerity of their friendship, an interest partaking of compassion. Fouquet, however, should not be judged by his smile, for in reality he felt as if he had been stricken by death. Drops of blood beneath his coat stained the fine linen that clothed his chest. His dress concealed the blood, and his smile the rage which devoured him. His domestics perceived, by the manner in which he approached his carriage, that their master was not in the best of humors. The result of their discernment was that his orders were executed with that exactitude of maneuver which is found on board a man-of-war, commanded during a storm by an ill-tempered captain. The carriage, therefore, did not simply roll along, it flew. Fouquet had hardly time to recover himself during the drive. On his arrival he went at once to Aramis, who had not yet retired for the night. As for Porthos, he had supped very agreeably, off a roast leg of mutton, two pheasants and a perfect heap of crayfish— He then directed his body to be anointed with perfumed oils in the manner of the wrestlers of old, and when this anointment was completed, he had himself wrapped in flannels and placed in a warm bed. Aramis, as we have already said, had not retired. Seated at his ease in a velvet dressing gown, he wrote letter after letter in that fine and hurried handwriting, a page of which contained a quarter of a volume. The door was thrown hurriedly open, and the superintendent appeared pale, agitated, anxious. Aramis looked up. "'Good evening,' said he, and his searching look detected his host's sadness and disordered state of mind. "'Was your play as good as his majesty's?' asked Aramis, by way of beginning the conversation. Fouquet threw himself upon a couch, and then pointed to the door to the servant who had followed him. When the servant had left, he said, "'Excellent!' Aramis, who had followed every movement with his eyes, noticed that he stretched himself upon the cushions with a sort of feverish impatience. "'You have lost, as usual,' inquired Aramis, with his pen still in his hand. "'Even more than usual,' replied Fouquet. "'You know how to support losses.' "'Sometimes.' "'What? "'Monsieur Fouquet, a bad player?' "'There is play, and play, Monsieur D'Herblay. "'How much have you lost?' inquired Aramis, with a slight uneasiness. Fouquet collected himself a moment, and then, without the slightest emotion, said, This evening has cost me four millions; <laughs> and a bitter laugh drowned the last vibration of these words. Aramis, who did not expect such an amount, dropped his pen, Four millions, he said, you have lost four millions, impossible. "'Monsieur Colbert held my cards for me,' replied the superintendent with a similar bitter laugh. "'Ah, now I understand. So, so, a new application for funds?' "'Yes, and from the king's own lips. It was impossible to ruin a man with a more charming smile. What do you think of it?' "'It is clear that your destruction is the object in view.' That is your opinion. Still, besides, there is nothing in it which should astonish you, for we have foreseen it all along. Yes, but I did not expect four millions. No doubt. The amount is serious. But, after all, four millions are not quite the death of a man, especially when the man in question is Monsieur Fouquet. "'My dear D'Herblay, if you knew the contents of my coffers, it would be less easy.' "'And you promised?' "'What could I do?' "'That's true.' "'The very day I refuse, Colbert will procure the money, whence I know not, but he will procure it, and I shall be lost.' "'There is no doubt of that.' In how many days did you promise these four millions? In three days. The king seemed exceedingly pressed. In three days? When I think, resumed Fouquet, that just now I I passed along the streets, the people cried out, There is the rich, monsieur Fouquet. It is enough to turn my brain. Stay, monsieur. The matter is not worth so much trouble. "'said Aramis calmly, sprinkling some sand over the letter he had just written. "'Suggest a remedy, then, for this evil without a remedy. "'There is only one remedy for you—pay. "'But it is very uncertain whether I have the money. "'Everything must be exhausted. Isle is paid for, the pension has been paid, "'and money since the investigation of the accounts of those who farm the revenue is scarce.' Besides, admitting that I pay this time, how can I do so on another occasion? When kings have tasted money, they are like tigers who have tasted flesh. They devour everything. The day will arrive, must arrive, when I shall have to say impossible, sire, and on that very day I am a lost man. Aramis raised his shoulders slightly, saying, A man in your position, my lord, is only lost when he wishes to be so. A man, whatever his position may be, cannot hope to struggle against a king. Nonsense. When I was young I wrestled successfully with the Cardinal Richelieu, who was king of France, nay, more, cardinal. Where are my armies, my troops, my treasures? I have not even Belle isle Bah! Necessity is the mother of invention, and when you think all is lost, something will be discovered which will retrieve everything. Who will discover this wonderful something? Yourself? I? I resign my office of inventor. Then I will. Be it so, but set to work without delay. Oh! Oh! "'We have time enough.' "'You kill me, d'herblay, with your calmness,' said the superintendent, passing his handkerchief over his face. "'Do you not remember that one day I told you not to make yourself uneasy, if you possessed courage? Have you any?' "'I believe so.' "'Then don't make yourself uneasy.' "'It is decided, then, that at the last moment you will come to my assistance it will only be the repayment of a debt i owe you it is the vocation of financiers to anticipate the wants of men such as yourself d'herblay if obligingness is the vocation of financiers charity is the virtue of the clergy only on this occasion do you act monsieur you are not yet sufficiently reduced and at the last moment we shall see what is to be done. We shall see, then, in a very short time. Very well. However, permit me to tell you that personally I regret exceedingly that you are at present so short of money, because I was myself about to ask you for some. For yourself? For myself. For some of my people. For mine, or for ours.' How much do you want? Be easy on that score. A roundish sum, it is true, but not too exorbitant. Tell me the amount. Fifty thousand francs. Oh, a mere nothing. Of course, one has always fifty thousand francs. Why, the deuce cannot that knave Colbert be as easily satisfied as you are? And I should give myself far less trouble than I do. When do you need this sum? Tomorrow morning, but you wish to know its destination. Nay, nay, Chevalier, I need no explanation. Tomorrow is the first of June. Well? One of our bonds becomes due. I did not know we had any bond. Certainly. Tomorrow we pay our last third installment. What third? Third. One of the hundred and fifty thousand francs of Baisemeaux. Baisemeaux, Who is he? The governor of the Bastille. Yes, I remember. On what grounds am I to pay one hundred and fifty thousand francs for that man? On account of the appointment which he, or rather we, purchased from Louvier in Tremblay. I have a very vague recollection of the matter. That is likely enough, for you have so many affairs to attend to. However, I do not believe you have any affair in the world of greater importance than this one. Tell me, then, why we purchased this appointment. Why, in order to render him a service in the first place, and afterwards ourselves. Ourselves? You are joking. Monseigneur, the time may come when the governor of the Bastille may prove a very excellent acquaintance. I have not the good fortune to understand you, D'Herblay, Monseigneur, we had our own poets, our own engineer, our own architect, our own musicians, our own printer, and our own painters. We needed our own governor of the Bastille. Do you think so? Let us not deceive ourselves, Monseigneur. "'We are very much opposed to paying the Bastille a visit.' Adding the prelate, displaying beneath his pale lips teeth, which were still the same beautiful teeth so much admired thirty years previously by Marie Michon. "'And you think it is not too much to pay one hundred and fifty thousand francs for that. "'I thought you generally put out money at better interest than that.' "'The day will come when you will admit your mistake.' My dear D'Herblay, the very day on which a man enters the Bastille, he is no longer protected by his past. Yes, he is, if the bonds are perfectly regular. Besides, that good fellow Baisemeaux has not a courtier's heart. I am certain, my lord, that he will not remain ungrateful for that money. Without taking into account, I repeat, that I retain the acknowledgments. It is a strange affair, Usury in a matter of benevolence. Do not mix yourself up with it, monseigneur. If there be usury, it is I who practice it, and both of us reap the advantage from it. That is all. Some intrigue, d'herblay. I do not deny it. And Baisemeaux an accomplice in it. Why not? There are worse accomplices than he— May I depend, then, upon the five thousand pistoles to-morrow? Do you want them this evening? It would be better, for I wish to start early. Poor Baisemeaux will not be able to imagine what has become of me, and must be upon thorns. You shall have the amount in an hour. Ah, d'herblay, the interest of one of your hundred and fifty thousand francs will never pay my four millions for me. Why not, Monseigneur? "'Good night. I have business to transact with my clerks before I retire.' "'A good night's rest, Monseigneur.' "'Dherblay, you wish things that are impossible.' "'Shall I have my fifty thousand francs this evening?' "'Yes.' "'Go to sleep, then, in perfect safety. It is I who tell you to do so.' Notwithstanding this assurance and the tone in which it was given, Fouquet left the room, shaking his head and heaving a sigh. End of Chapter Ninety Seven. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.